Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest. Her name is Sally Denton. She just published a book, June 28th, 2022. Title of that book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. Really fascinating book. Her publisher sent me a copy of it, read through most of it. Uh, really fascinating. This is not her first book. She's a very accomplished writer with a, a really a great CV. And I'll go through some uh, list some of her titles. But her bio is that she is an investigative reporter, author, and historian who writes about the subjects others ignore, from a drug conspiracy in Kentucky to organized crime in Las Vegas, from corruption within the Mormon church to murdered women in New Mexico, from one of, of America's bitterest political campaigns to the powerful forces arrayed against Franklin D. Roosevelt. While the subject of her books at first glance seemed varied or disparate, they are actually unified by a central theme of the exploration of subjects in American history that have been neglected or marginalized and characters whom I return to their rightful places in history. She's a Guggenheim Fellow, a Woodrow Wilson Public Scholar, a Black Mountain Cluj Fellow, and the recipient of the Robert Laxalt Distinguished Writer Award and two Western Heritage Awards. Her book, The Profiteers, Bechdel, and the Men Who Built the World, won Best Investigative Book of 2016 from Investigative Reporters and Editors for the IRE. She's been inducted into the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame and is a decades-long resident of Santa Fe, New Mexico, close to where the events of this uh, happened. Uh, she's the mother of three sons and is married to journalist and author John L. Smith. Her website is her full name, sallydenton.com, www.sallydenton.com. I'll put that in the show notes. And her Twitter handle is at Sally Denton. And some of her books are The Money and the Power. That was written in 2002. Faith and Betrayal, a Pioneer, Pioneer Woman's Passage in the American West, 2007. American Massacre, the Tragedy of Mountain Meadows. That was in September 1857. That was published in 2007 and ties into this book. Passion and Principle, John and Jesse Fremont, the couple whose power, politics, and love shaped 19th century America. That's 2008. And then Bechdel book, that was 2016. And then The Bluegrass Conspiracy, an inside story of power, greed, drugs, and murder. That was published 2016. Plot Against the President, FDR, a nation in crisis and the rise of American right, of the American right, 2019. And then The Pink Lady, The Many Lives of Helen Gahagan Douglas. And again, we're going to talk about this one uh, again. Really fascinating book. I knew of little pieces of it, but uh, she went much more in depth. And then what I knew, title again is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, Sally Denton. So welcome to the show, Sally. Thanks, William, for having me. Excellent. So for people, you have a long background. Can you kind of talk about your books and what led you to write this one, The Colony? Yeah, I, uh, as you, um, uh, you know, outlined all of my books, um, it took uh, a lot of um, these books to get to this particular one. I'm just kind of describe the current one, The Colony, which is um, the most recently published one. And then I'll talk about how it got me, uh, how all my other books got me to this. But basically, this story is about um, a massacre of women and children. On November 4th in 2019, a caravan of women and children were attacked, brutally attacked while traveling through northern Mexico, um, leaving nine dead and five gravely, gravely wounded. The three women and six of their children were murdered. They were shot at close range, essentially executed. And um, and uh, one of the women, they were all in, in SUVs, and one of the women and her four children were actually burned alive. And 
the victims were, this is in uh, northern, the, the attack happened in uh, northern Mexico in the state of Sonora. But the family that I write about, the, many of the victims were from a town in Chihuahua called Colonia LeBaron. And um, the, the victims were all members of the LeBaron uh, community and uh, La Mora community in Sonora, and they were related to each other. Uh, these are both fundamentalist Mormon outposts uh, whose forebears broke from the Mormon church and settled in Mexico when polygamy was outlawed in the United States in the 1890s. So it goes back that far. Uh, the case was brutal. The women were, it became clear uh, that they were uh, attacked, um, that they were targeted. There was no case of mistaken identity. Uh, there was no, initially, the uh, some of the uh, early, uh, I guess, investigators on the scene said that they were caught in a crossfire between rival cartels in the region, but that soon became clear that that was not the case. Uh, there was videotape uh, evidence of the attack on them, and, um, and the case is still open. There were as many as 100 uh, shooters um, carrying long guns and automatic weapons. And, and uh, one of the cars had 321 bullet casings in it. And it was broad daylight. And um, so they were, um, it, it became clear very early on that they were targeted. They had been in the region, um, as I said, for decades and, and some back to the uh, 19th century, the families. So um, they were well known in the region and um, the case is still open. And so my book picks up uh, where the initial reporting left off, revealing uh, the violent history of the LeBaron clan and their homestead down there from, from the first polygamist immigrations to Mexico in the 1880s through the LeBaron's own family uh, violent blood feud in the 1970s and even the family's alliance with the Nexium sex cult in Albany, and up to the rising tensions with neighboring cartels and local farmers over smuggling routes and dwindling water reserves in the region. The, uh, the LeBaron uh, colony has huge, um, massive pecan and walnut farms that are uh, extraordinarily profitable. And- um, I'm Sorry to interrupt, but you'll see that if you're on YouTube and you see the cover of the book. This is the LeBaron compound, and the green trees are those nut trees, right? Right. That, that's it. And you can see um, that, well, you, it's not that obvious here, but they are surrounded. It's a tiny community of between 3,500 and 5,000 uh, full-time residents um, that come and go because a lot of their family members also live in the United States. These, uh, this family, most many of them are have dual American citizenship, especially the men. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a fundamentalist um, offshoot of the mainstream Mormon church in Salt Lake, headquartered in Salt Lake City. Um, there are, are um, Mexico. But, has, right, well, but it's interesting because this offshoot, the splinter group, has its legacy going all the way back to Joseph Smith, right? right. So. And I trace that. I mean, yes. they and they they claim that they are directly descended um, from one of Joseph Smith's closest um, uh, confidants and advisors, and someone who who they claim Joseph Smith gave um, uh, transferred his the mantle to lead the church to. So 
the patriarchs of this uh, community uh, believe that they are directly descended from, uh, from Joseph Smith. And as you can see on that cover, wherever it's not the big green trees, it's surrounded by um, often, you know, significantly more blighted land around them, but they're surrounded by huge agricultural enterprises run by um, uh, natives of the uh, Mexicans and indigenous people that have been farming in that region for many, many years, which created a lot of tension. tension and right, so. in that story, you know, in this book, I basically, I developed inside sources within drug enforcement and law enforcement on both, both sides of the uh, of the border and even sources within the cartels, as well as a pipeline into the sister sisterhood of women in the colony um, and to those who had escaped to the States and who still live there and, and prioritizing their perspective, perspectives within the community. And which is how I came to uh, want to write about this story to begin with. The first thing I thought when I saw this is, um, why are these women and children traveling alone on one of the most dangerous roads in the world? Um, where are their husbands? Where were they that day? They had had warnings the night before that there was violence on this uh, trafficking route. And it just uh, begged the question from the beginning, where were the husbands? And, uh, and these, the, the men of the LeBaron colony historically, traditionally, um, famously travel routinely with armed bodyguards. So it was, it's, it just stuck out. So that is kind of the, um, I guess it, it, it is the culmination, as you said, this is my ninth book. <clears throat> and this is kind of uh, the culmination of these other eight books that if you look back at them, as you pointed out, it seems that uh, you know, they are, they deal with disparate subjects. Actually, the bluegrass conspiracy was my first one. It was about a uh, drug trafficking ring in Lexington, Kentucky that I wrote about. And uh, I, I wrote as and reported as a, as an uh, investigative reporter for the CBS affiliate in Lexington, Kentucky in the 1980s. And this book was actually published in 19. Uh, 89, that's my first book and has gotten the most attention of all of my books. It was a huge expose of a group of men that were uh, connected through familial ties, uh, wealthy men in uh, the Lexington Blue Blood community. I think that the, um, uh, the book, the edition that you referred to was a repub in, okay, in 2016, but that's why that's really the first book, and and probably the one that I initially was, you know, I'm still best known for because it it brought so much attention. And that book started uh, with um, with my examination into the disappearance and murders of a couple of women uh, that were around this drug trafficking ring and. Uh, that were, you know, party girls with the uh, the the blue blood thoroughbred horse uh, horse partying, you know, uh, community of Lexington, Kentucky. Right, and there's a lot of that out there, right? So there was drugs. There was actually a huge growing operation, or uh, yeah, that, that I mean, that still is, you know, being <clears throat> an amazing story. But to get to that, even I would have to go further. If you want to know how my 
how my career, my writing career started. Actually, it was um, I, I started with a little newspaper in um, northern New Mexico outside of Santa Fe. And uh, one of the, my first stories um, was about all these murdered women that were disappearing. And um, I kept uh, uh, the bodies would turn up and I was a young 25 year old reporter, 23 year old reporter with a weekly uh, newspaper. And I didn't know I my degree is in English literature from the University of Colorado. I didn't take any journalism. And it was a fluke that I ended up in with a uh, with a job in um, at a, a little newspaper. But I was trying to learn as fast as I could literally going to the library and reading, um, you know, Edward R. Murrow and learning about who, what, why, when. It was just, I was so green. And and right off the bat, I was um, sent out to do stories about these murdered. They were all young. They were all beautiful. They're, they were my age, 23, Hispanic, in this really benighted little community of Española. And um I, I finally, after a few weeks of this and new to the job, I went to the owner of the newspaper, the publisher and Bob Trapp. And I said, you know, I, I mean, literally I was so green and naive that every single day I would call the chief of the state police and say, are there any new, you know, any new leads in the Francine Valerio case, Francine Valerio, I call her my, my first victim, my first murder victim. And and I would call and they'd say, no, nothing yet. And there were all these rumors and everybody in the community seemed to know who had bludgeoned her to death. And so I went to Bob Trapp, the publisher, and I said, you know, I don't think they're even trying to solve these cases. And he said, well, they never solve anything up here. And I said, you know, we agreed that I would go back and look in the morgue and pull out all these, you know, old newspaper stories. And sure enough, I think we came up with almost, uh, I think there were 13 victims, all young women, who were murdered in a brutal way in you know, just a few years. And, um, and none of the cases were solved. And long story short, we uh, opened, we got a special grand jury and opened some of those cases. Uh, they ended up being tied directly to the state capitol in Santa Fe. They were couriers of heroin. So, you know, at 25 years old, I had exposed a huge heroin ring in northern New Mexico and the murders um, of uh, at least 13. I think before it was over, we were up into the 20s of unsolved murders related to the heroin trade. And so that was kind of my first uh, experience. And um, as a result of that, I won, you know, awards in the state of New Mexico and uh, the big uh, you know what you always talk about the turn in the road that that changes direction because i never wanted to be a reporter i wanted to write mysteries um uh, jack anderson the legendary investigative reporter and muckraker from washington dc uh heard about this these exposés that this young woman in new mexico did and he hired me and brought me to washington dc to work wow. for him and oh, at that wow, moment that's it was amazing. And at that moment, this is just post Watergate. Um, so it was 1979. And uh, Jack had it was a powerful journalism empire. He was published in a he was syndicated in a thousand newspapers wow. in the United States. Wow. And he was like a really a true investigative reporter. He Independent, was independent, you know, very and honest. integrity. Right? He yeah. was Mormon, Mormon right. Salt Lake yeah. City. And uh, when I got there, 
it was so heady. There were only about, I'd say, 15 of us working for him, and we're all in our 20s. And and uh, they were, um, uh, he, he was in a thousand newspapers. He was on Good Morning America three days a week. He was on Mutual Broadcast Radio five days a week. He was in Parade Magazine. And we were digging up all these kids, basically we're digging up stories um, all over uh, all over the country. And my first job with him as an intern initially was to sit in this room and every single day the mailman would bring a gunny sack full of letters to Jack Anderson. It's important to know he inherited the column from Drew Pearson, who was even more famous than he was for the, from the 40s and 50s. I never heard that name. Yeah, I don't know that yeah. name. He inherited the column from Drew. And these were letters. I always thought I grew up in Las Vegas, outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And I always thought that Nevada was um, uh, uniquely corrupt. And then I did the job in, in New Mexico. And I thought New Mexico was really uniquely corrupt. Well, once I saw these bags full of letters from all over the country, and it, I'm telling you, they were little letters, people sending him a dollar, please explore, you know, please investigate my city council in this town in Louisiana. They are, I'm convinced they're corrupt and, and they're taking bribes. Please, please come and, and look at my state in Montana. There's uh, kickbacks going. And it was from all over the country. And, um, you know, it was just like sifting through those um was like a needle in a haystack to find a story that was going to be a national story that Jack wanted to, you know, dig his teeth into. But he had so much uh, clout on Capitol Hill that, you know, once I got through that in the internship and he hired me, we were basically, you know, I could pick up the phone and call a United States senator and say, this is Sally Denton. I work for Jack Anderson. And the senator would take my call. Everybody was scared to death of Jack Anderson and everybody talked. And it was just really um, a, a uh, what what turned out to be almost a graduate degree in investigative reporting, just, I bet. not just Jack, but the, the people around him that were, uh, you know, that mentored me. So he was, it was very cloak and dagger type stuff back then too, pre-internet. Um, right. He was always, he, I think he, you know, he felt pressured at certain times during well, it was cloak and dagger because yeah. Richard Nixon, um, you know, attempted to have him assassinated. Okay. Well, that's and, yeah, they put, um, I think it was LSD on his uh, steering wheel. At one point there were, oh, wow. there were several attempts just um, around the Watergate era um, and wow. during the Nixon administration to have him killed. So it was heady stuff. And um but I went, you know, from there to Kentucky and and the first thing I, I started investigating are, are murdered women. And I thought, well, this is unusual. I just investigated murdered women in New Mexico. And I, as I moved up the, the line of my career, that's kind of what, a, um, what, what all of my books have in common is finding these people, you know, in my, in my view, the murdered women are the women that were not able to... Uh, speak for themselves or have any justice on their, on their behalf. And so I kind of took that to, you know, writ large with uh, basically exposing secrets that people, I always just kind of started looking at, um, you know, why is, why did this happen? Who, who's responsible for this happening? How did this happen? And who doesn't want you to know about it? And basically that's been my career. 
So giving the giving shining light on those events. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in New Mexico. I mean, there's a lot. It's pretty rough. And I mean, even the Western role of the Mormons was rough, right? I mean, you talk, yeah. Can you talk about how the government tried to clamp down on what you call the principle, or what the Mormons call the principle, and what led to the more the Mountain Meadows massacre? Yeah, the that um, the Mountain Meadows massacre. Um, I wrote about American Massacre is the book. That was an event that happened in 1857 where um, basically the uh, Mormon pioneers in Utah um, attacked a wagon train, the wealthiest wagon train to ever cross the country. And it was a wagon train full of women and children and uh, a group from Arkansas that was moving their entire um they had been in Arkansas for, for generations and they were moving to California. This was all during the gold rush era. And they, they had a thousand head of cattle and, and weapons and gold and women's finery. And um, basically they were ambushed. Uh, they had to go through Utah territory to get to California. And at this time, Brigham Young, who was then the head of uh, the Mormon church uh, was at basically at um, a cold war, I guess I would say, with the United States, which uh, was uh, trying to uh, get control of Utah territory, uh, which had been set up by Brigham Young as a theocracy, a theocratic nation state, essentially. So um, they attacked this wagon train, and it was brutal, 140 women and men. Uh, they were laid under siege for, for five days with no water, and under a false flag of um, uh, truce. And it's just, uh, it's one of the most brutal and one-on-one, um, -on -one, uh, you know, European Mormon, well, the Mormons dressed up as Indians and slaughtered the wagon train and they would have uh, gotten away with it. And that would have been that, except that they, um, it was one of the reasons they ultimately, uh, the government, the U.S. government knew that it was the Mormons who perpetrated it was that they saved everybody under the age of eight years old uh, because eight is the is the uh, uh, age of innocence in the Mormon faith. So several of the children who were eight years old and and seven and six and seven and eight years old who could remember what happened as their parents were um, brutally slaughtered by, you know, knives and I mean, throats cut and and uh, children guns. shot like the whole bit yeah. Uh, yeah the whole bit but they were able to remember and they told u.s government officials that uh that the killers were indians but then they went to after all the killing was done they went to the river and washed their faces and they were white men and then the, these same white men who had killed their families took all the survived there were 17 surviving children and took them and dispersed them between families so there was ultimately congressional testimony that um, that led to the Mormon culpability, which is uh, why uh, the U.S. government then started really uh, buckling down on Utah and holding them accountable. They wanted somebody held accountable for the uh, uh, this slaughter, and this I then this is why I kind of weave in the the history into this recent book of the massacre of the young women and children in Mexico. Uh, because Brigham Young sent some of the perpetrators of this massacre down to uh, uh, Mexico, Mexican uh, Mexico, and outside of uh, the United States. I mean, this is um, you know the, it was still part of uh, 
even the southern United States was part of Mexico, but sent the perpetrators to uh, northern Mexico to hide out. And so some of the descendants, in fact, I draw a direct, direct line to one of the descendants who uh, was in control, was uh, ordered the killing of the, of the children, um, is a direct forebear of Colonia, the, the, uh, the men of Colonia LeBaron. And so that's why I, I end up, you know, the book is The Colony, The, the Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, the, the, which is a true crime story about, you know, what something that happened just three years ago has a direct connection to um, all of the history, which is why the book is more laden with history than uh, a usual true crime book would be. Right. It's really fascinating, though, because some, some of these ideas, the uh, blood atonement, go all the way back to this early Mormon. And I think the Mountain Massacre, it happened in the bot, like the southwestern part of Utah, right? Yes. Yeah, closer to Vegas, yeah. So they were almost kind of, the the train was almost out of. Almost Vegas, out of the territory. Yeah. And they had been, you know, they were coming across and they were, were planning to go across uh, northern Utah through Salt Lake City and rest their cattle and make the final push through, you know, across Donner Pass and into California. And uh, Mormon uh, scouts came and met them there and said that the there was too much snow in the Donner and the Rock and the Sierra, and uh, said that they should go south to Mountain Meadow, a beautiful meadow that was full of uh, grass for the cattle, which is what uh, lured them down there. And it was a perfect ambush. It was a spot that you know had a narrow opening and a narrow closing, and they were just outside the range of uh, you know getting to California. Yeah, that's incredible. And so that was at the time. So after that, that was 1857. And so then they also wanted to tamp, like the principle of, of polygamy was supposed okay, to be so secret, the, right? Um, be secret. Well, yeah, they didn't, the, the church did not um, acknowledge it for many years, The um, which is another reason I bring in, as you mentioned, the book Faith and Betrayal. That's a book about my great-great-grandmother who was converted to Mormonism in 1849 in England and came across by wagon train, brought the first piano into the inter-American, uh, inter-mountain west. And she was converted under, with the understanding that they were not practicing polygamists. And then when she got to Utah, it became clear that polygamy was very much a part of the faith and had been even under Joseph Smith. It was Joseph Smith has died by the time uh, Brigham Young and the Mormons had gotten to Salt Lake. Uh, but it was uh, it was considered a, a, a viable and essential part. A celestial marriage was essential part of the faith be an essential part of the male female relationship because in uh, uh, only the worthy men could go to the promised land, could go to uh, uh, eternity, and only the worthy men could, the only way that women could get there was to be pulled through the veil by, by a worthy man. So it was, and, and it was um, uh, important for the man to have as many wives as possible. It was all part of, you know, building the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, because this was, uh, they had been persecuted in um, in New York and in Ohio and on the whole way across the country before um, Joseph Smith was ultimately killed by a by an angry mob. But um, the polygamy was very much a part of of maintaining and building 
not just uh, the uh, kingdom on earth, but also the the kingdom in in heaven. And the women were very much a part of the uh, uh, and and accepted the role of that. Um, I mean, by whoever didn't was gone by the by the time of the early uh, you know 1870s 1880s. But uh, the women were seen as you know the only value was in reproducing. Um, and the and they are considered chattel, and that to this day in that colony, the uh, the women, the men, the patriarchal men of colonial LeBaron um, have you know fifty children and you know four or five wives and fifty children and a hundred and some grandchildren, and and um, uh, that's considered um, you know that's their their empire. Right, and it, it did the polygamy solidified. The male hierarchy too, right? So absolutely, and and much of you know, I'm not a Mormon scholar, but I've at this point I've written um, a lot about Mormon history, and um, it was it was always used from from the beginning of Joseph Smith to wield power and influence with his male followers. He was the only one who could tell, um, you know, could provide wives to his his male followers, and that continued on through Brigham Young. So. There was, you know, a great uh, competition for the men, uh, you know, the, the 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 followers of the prophet to gain favor with the prophet, who could then provide them with the uh, their new wives. Right, very important. So the prophet maintains control through the dispersion of wives that you need to get to the celestial heaven. So that it makes the prophet even more important. Because the prophet, yeah, I think it was even Warren Jeffs too, who was an offshoot. He right. was the one who distributed the females, and the women had no choice; don't get any choice in the matter. Right, and I write about that in the colony, which is contemporary. You know, we're not talking about the 1800s, right. and and uh, but the the patriarchs, the men decide uh, basically, you know, who the wives are going to be. Mexico, uh, polygamy is illegal in Mexico and the United States. Mexico allowed this group of uh, polygamists from the United States to come in. In fact, Brigham Young and the Mormon Church bought the original uh, land for the colonies in Mexico. But um, so they kind of got grandfathered in. And um, so even though um, polygamy is not legal in Mexico, there haven't been crackdowns on the polygamous colonies in Mexico before. Well, and that area of Mexico is kind of like the south parts of the southwest. It was considered arid, right? Hard, hard to, to very similar to Utah. And um, and in fact, I I write a lot in this. You know, as I'm looking for motives, which is you know what I did from the beginning. I didn't expect to ever solve solve the massacre. I figured you know if um, dozens of of Mexican and American law enforcement officials couldn't do it. Um, and, you know, when they have subpoena power and armies of investigators, I figured if they hadn't done it, that I wasn't going to be able to solve it. But so I really set out to look for the reason behind it, look for the motives behind it. And, um, and along the way, I came across, um, you know, I said to my editor at one point, this is feeling, this was like murder on the Orient Express. Um, find somebody who didn't want, uh, didn't have a, a beef with the LeBarons. 
because the, like you said, it's in an, an arid land, lot, lot, much like Salt Lake City, so the Great Salt Lake was when Brigham Young settled it. And they have spent um, uh, several decades uh, expropriating the water that the local communities feel um, has, uh, you know, was supposed to be for for all of the communities and the the water that they've accused the LeBarons of drilling illegal wells and dropping the the water table so that there's no water available for the smaller indigenous communities. And it's not only that. There's some. Um, you know, there's uh, everybody needs the water. I mean, this is a ground ground zero for climate change in an arid land because this is these are. I mean, the cartels need the water for you know growing <laughs> growing poppies, growing marijuana. The fentanyl labs, the methamphetamine amphetamine labs need water. The uh, avocado growers need water. The uh, agave growers for tequila need water. Everybody needs the water, and it's a dwindling supply. And the LeBarons stick out like a sore thumb um, in controlling it all. Right, and I mean, there's a it gets there's parts of this book are very strange. The Blood Atonement, Ervil LeBaron. There's a whole part of this story that gets really ugly, much like the Mountain uh, Meadows massacre. And people can read more about that. We're at about 33 minutes, Sally. Do you have time for a few questions? Sure. So Sabrina asks, how large is the existing colony in Mexico? Um, the uh, the col Colonia LeBaron right now, I think, is about 3,500 people. Uh, a lot of people left after the massacre. It can be up to 5,000 people. As I said, there uh, a lot of people have dual American citizenship, so they go back and forth across the border. And a lot of the men from Colonial LeBaron work in the United States, and uh, which is creating a whole other problem for the colony because a lot of the women are left behind. There's say, you know, four wives of one um, male landowner and uh, overseeing these huge plantation, nut plantations essentially, and uh, overseeing the labor of uh, mostly uh, Mexican and native um, workers. So right. that, you said it almost functions like a matriarchy, right? You wouldn't believe it, but it yeah, it, well, I mean, that's one of the things <clears throat> I explored. It never had before, as I said, the women were, you know, completely subservient. Their only value was in their reproductive abilities, and uh, and generally, the women were pregnant, um, gave birth eighteen months apart, um, and were you know pregnant from the time they became. Um, able to get pregnant until the time they could no longer produce. And so, you know, that's most well, the women would have 13 or more children. And but that's changing now with the uh, some of the women down there who are actually rising to have um, control over uh, over some of the production, the agricultural production, and dealing with um, some of the business interests on their in their own right. I, I do one of the interesting things that I found. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in this book that it just doesn't stop. But you know, around the same time that this was happening, um, El Chapo Guzman was also um, really um, uh, allowing his organization. He was. Um, 
his organization, the, the Sinaloa cartel, was evolving into more of a matriarchy. He trusted women more than men, and Emma Coronel Aspuro, his wife, who was recently arrested in the United States, was um, had extraordinary power in the Sinaloa cartel. So that's worthy of another book down the road for somebody right. else. But and there's another huge family too. I think he had like 15 sons or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. <laughs> really wild. And you mentioned in your book, there's been a lot of apostates out of these groups, right? A lot of uh, books written. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of memoirs written by women who have escaped. You know, it's just, it's such a sad story. And I really, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not one that likes to, you know, mythologize, you know, female victims here or anything. I want to get to the bottom of it and found out and find out, you know, who's doing this, who's killing these women and why. And it's so weird. This is kind of full circle back to where we started, William. But it was um, after that first, you know, my first series of murders in Española in the 1970s. I keep coming full circle. I've done a book in Lexington. I've written The Money and the Power about the rise of organized crime in Las Vegas. And and I, I have found that every ta every place that I go and live where I've lived, um, if you start looking at, if you're just watching the newspapers and, you know, women are disappearing or turning up dead. If you start looking at who murdered the women of this community, you're going to get to the power structure, power structure of that city. Wow. And it's just, you know, it was mind blowing to me. It took me nine books to figure that out. That's what happened in Ciudad Juarez, right? The whole femicide exactly. down there. Yeah. The power structure. I mean, that's kind of right in your area. Truth or consequences. There's a bunch of well, and also there. West Mesa of Albuquerque. There were, right, that story, been, yeah. you know, tons of uh, prostitutes that have been murdered and found there. And so if you start looking, of course, nobody cares about murdered prostitutes, but you start looking into it and, you know, who who uh, is uh, who's going to benefit from silencing uh, prostitutes? And that's powerful men that have been paying them that are, you know, married or political officials or people who have been bribed, you know, so it just, you go up that chain and it takes you to the top. Right. And Deal asks, did the author's grandmother remain a practicing Mormon after she converted? No, she didn't. She actually, um, there's actually two, uh, my great, great grandmother who brought the piano. Uh, when she got there, she had converted and had had seven children and brought them from England and she had her own means, um, which was unusual. I mean, she did bring the piano and Brigham Young took it from her and gave it to his favorite wife. But as soon as the railroad came in in 1869, uh, she was on one of the first trains by all account and went to California and became, she stayed um, She stayed a Christian, and um, but she, she abandoned Mormonism and became a uh, Unitarian. And uh, but then part of the book, Faith and Betrayal, also traces and as does the colony, my new book. But it's not obvious that that's what it does. I don't reveal um, some of the relationships till the end of the book. But my great grandmother uh, came to Utah as a little uh, nine year old Danish girl pushing a, uh, a handcart. And um, and she was because she became a second wife. And my grandmother was raised in polygamy in Utah, the 23rd child of a polygamist. And this is why it was it was emotional and front and center for me when when the church in Utah 
made it illegal for the polygamists to practice polygamy, and many of them went to Mexico. Um, my grandmother, my great grandmother, and her thirteen children, all of a sudden, um, you know, she was a concubine, and they were bastards. And the state didn't take care of them. This was, you know, the church did that in exchange for statehood from the United States. The state didn't take care of them. The church didn't take care of them. And so I just kind of have that in my DNA growing. I was not raised Mormon. and But growing up and knowing, having that family history, there was, um, you know, a sense of uh, like a, yeah. not fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, you're, you're part of the pioneer westward flow of people into... Uh, Western United States, so you're part of that topography. And is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up? What about the 40-minute mark? Um, I don't think so. I feel like I've done a lot of talking. But... Yeah, you've done a lot. I mean, it's a really fascinating book. There's a lot more to the story. There's a lot of blood feuds and uh, insanity south of the border. But uh, you, people can read about it in the colony. And there's an audio book for this as well, right? Yes. And, and... it even, uh, you know, talk about a curveball in the middle of the research it, uh, there's a connection to Nexium in Albany. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> Can you talk, what is that connection? Didn't he flee to Mexico? Didn't uh, Ranieri? No, he didn't. Well, he was in Mexico, for, but he he was um, uh, recruiting um, young underage girls from Colonia LeBaron to come uh, to his colony in upstate New York. Wow. I, never, I missed that part of the story. That's incredible. So they, <laughs> they were, they were uh, do you think... Nexium was involved in more human trafficking than publicly acknowledged. Do you know? You know, I did not cover. This was just one aspect of the Nexium. I I, uh, I didn't cover the trials, or but um, as soon as I saw the uh, Colonial LeBaron connection, I you know I delved into that aspect. And the best place to reach you, Sally, you have social media and you also have a website. Your full name, right? Yeah, Sally. Sally, uh, Well, www.sallydenton.com. My email is sally at sallydenton.com, and I'm on Twitter at Sally Denton. And um, I don't know about Facebook. I might be on there. <laughs> so the best, if people can reach out to you if they have any questions. Absolutely. Do yeah. you, um, and, and where's the best place to get the book? Do you sell books from your website or Amazon? It's or? on sale on the website. And, uh, and of course, Amazon and every other bookstore. So people can get signed copies if they want them from you, right? Yes. Got right. cool. So that's at sallydenton.com. Sally, fascinating book and great discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. And the author, again, is Sally Denton, just published June 28th, 2022. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.